The year is 1931, and the harsh realities of what would come to be known as the Great Depression are beginning to take root. The unemployment rate in the U.S. has risen to 16%, more than five times what it was before the stock market crashed in 1929. Farmers in the Great Plains are anxiously taking note of the declining rainfall, more frequent dust storms, and the erosion of their soil that will eventually change the way of life in the nation's Midwest forever. Around the country, artists, playwrights, and poets are debating whether their work should actively address the economic and social struggles of the day or focus more on timeless and universal themes. And in that year of 1931, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Susan Glassbell's Allison's House, a drama about art, love, and legacy that was inspired by the life of the poet Emily Dickinson. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Susan Glassbell's name isn't as well known today as it was during the first part of the 20th century when she was a big deal literary figure. Glassbell was the author of nine novels, several of them bestsellers. Allison's House was the 14th of the 15 plays she completed, and Glassbell was a co-founder of the legendary Provincetown Players, where Eugene O'Neill also got his professional start. Michael Billington, the dean of London theater critics, has called Glassbell American drama's best-kept secret. Others have called her the mother of modern American drama. I have to admit that I'd only heard Glassbell's name in passing, but as I began to do the research for this episode, I became obsessed with her. And I hope you bear with me as I explain why. Glassbell was born on July 1st, 1876, on her family's homestead outside the town of Davenport, Iowa. She was the middle child and only daughter of Elmer Glassbell, a farmer, and his wife, Alice Keating Glassbell, who had been a schoolteacher. Susan, the most precocious of her siblings, was always interested in writing, and although she was very proud of her family's pioneer roots in Davenport, which they had helped to settle, she was always determined to make a way for herself in the wider world. She started working at the local newspaper when she was 18 and saved up enough money to go to Drake University in Des Moines. There, she majored in philosophy and was a star on the school's debating team. After graduating in 1899, she got a job at the Des Moines Daily News, covering the state legislature. That was a rare assignment for a young woman when most female reporters were still relegated to the society pages. But Glassbell's most memorable assignment was covering the murder trial of a woman who hacked her abusive husband to death with an axe while he was sleeping. It would later inspire Glassbell's play Trifles, which is still considered to be her masterpiece. Exhausted 
after doing more than two dozen stories on the murder case, Glassbell returned home to Davenport and focused on her first love, writing fiction. In almost no time, she began selling short stories to Harper's Magazine, Ladies' Home Journal, and other leading literary magazines of the day, earning enough to help support her parents and her brothers, which she continued to do for the rest of her life. In 1909, she published her first novel, which earned a glowing review in the New York Times and became a bestseller. So she naturally became part of the literary circle in Davenport, which is how she met George Cram Cook, then a literary professor at the University of Iowa who was known by his childhood nickname, Jig. He was three years older than Glassbell, a member of one of the wealthiest families in Davenport, and already in his second marriage and the father of two. But Cook and Glassbell fell madly in love. He got a divorce and they married in 1913 when Glassbell was 37. An ardent feminist, she kept her last name both professionally and personally. But to escape the disapproving gossip about their love affair and to seek a larger artistic community, the couple moved to New York and settled in Greenwich Village. There they immediately fell in with such artists and activists as Georgia O'Keeffe, Upton Sinclair, John Reed, and Emma Goldman. Glassbell also became a member of Heterodoxy, a pioneering feminist group that advocated for giving women the right to vote and access to birth control. All of Glassbell's novels and plays would focus on women pushing the boundaries society had set for them. In the summer of 1959, Cook and Glassbell joined many of their friends who were fleeing the heat of the New York summer and renting homes in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Like many intellectuals at the time, they had become fascinated by the way that plays by Ibsen and Chekhov had begun dealing with real-life issues, and they wanted to do something similar for the American theater. So they decided to form an amateur theater group that would do plays about ordinary people. They began by writing the plays and then reading and performing them in one another's living rooms. The evenings caught on quickly and the group soon needed more works. So they asked neighbors if they had anything they wanted to put on. One of them did. His name was Eugene O'Neill. One of the group's first big hits was his play Bound East for Cardiff. Another was Trifles play based on the murder case that Glassbell had covered years earlier. She would later say that it took her just 10 days to write it. The next summer, the group, led by Jake, converted part of an old fish house on the Provincetown Wharf into a theater that fit about 90 seats. They sold subscriptions for $2.50 to cover their basic cost, but they continued taking turns writing plays and acting in them. Always prolific, Susan wrote several and acted in many of them. The group called themselves the Provincetown Players. After two seasons in Provincetown, the players moved their operations to the city in 1918. There, they drew even more attention with uptown critics traveling downtown, buying tickets to see and review their work. 
the plays by Glasspell and O'Neill remained the most praised and the most popular. But a schism began to develop in the group with some members like Glasspell and Cook who wanted to continue putting on works at the downtown home they'd created on McDougal Street on one side, and those like O'Neill, who wanted to do productions that had the potential to move uptown to Broadway on the other side. The final straw came with the production of O'Neill's The Hairy Ape in 1922. Even before the players broke up later that year, Glasspell and Cook packed up and moved to Greece, where Cook had always wanted to live. They stayed there for two years, until Jig died in 1924 after contracting a disease from their pet dog. He was just 50. Glassbell, then 48, returned to Provincetown after his death. There, she continued writing novels and a loving memoir about Jake called The Road to the Temple, which became another bestseller for her. Then, in 1930, came Allison's House. That year was the centenary of Emily Dickinson's birth, and it clearly inspired Glassbell's play. The house in the title is the home of Alison Stanhope, a renowned poet who, when the play opens, has been dead for 17 years. But now, on New Year's Eve, 1899, her relatives have gathered to say goodbye to the place because they can no longer afford its upkeep and have sold it to a couple who plan to turn it into a boarding house for tourists who they hope will be attracted by Allison's literary fame. Among those gathered for the farewell are Allison's sister, who has been safeguarding some unpublished poems and letters that could reveal intimate secrets about the spinster poet's life. Their brother, who years ago disowned his own daughter for jeopardizing the family's reputation by running away with the married man she loved. And a newspaper reporter, hoping to find a juicy story about the famous poet and her kin. Over the course of the play, all of them wrestle with questions about what should be done with the unpublished work and how far people should be willing to go for love. It was the first new play Glasspell had completed in eight years. The players no longer existed, so she took it to her friend, the actress manager, Ava Legallian, who agreed to stage it. Allison's house opened at Legallian's theater on 14th Street on December 1st, 1930. The critics were not impressed. The following quote from the critic for the New York World Telegram is typical of what they said. Quote, Somewhere there is stirring drama in the life, death, and resurrection of Miss Emily Dickinson, but Susan Glassbell has not managed to find where the life, death, and resurrection are. End quote. With notices like that, Allison's house only played 41 performances at La Galliane's Theater, and it might have just disappeared after that. But then came the news that it had won the Pulitzer Prize. And now the critics were furious. 
They insisted that better options that year included Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman's Once in a Lifetime, Grand Hotel by W.A. Drake, or Elizabeth the Queen by Maxwell Anderson. They publicly ridiculed the three members on that year's Pulitzer jury, saying that two of them were too old and out of touch to recognize a good play, and that the third was himself a mediocre playwright. The New York Times critic Brooks Atkinson summed up all their fury when he declared that Glassbell's win was the most unsatisfactory dramatic award made during the past few years. Atkinson did try to soften his criticism by saying that he considered Glassbell a far better novelist and would have had no complaints had she been honored for her most recent novel. But of course, he wasn't the book critic. There was such bitter disagreement at the time that some people have speculated that the backlash led the disaffected critics to form the New York Drama Critics Circle four years later so that they could give out their own awards. Still, Le Gallien moved the play to Broadway after it won the Pulitzer, but it ran for just two weeks. Although that might have been because Le Gallienne, who had cast herself in the pivotal role of the ostracized niece, left the production after the first week for a sabbatical that she had planned before anyone knew that the play was going to win the Pulitzer. Glassbell was aware of the controversy over her win, and she stoically wrote a friend that she would try to do better the next time. But she only wrote one more play before her death in 1948 at the age of 72, and she couldn't find a producer for it. All writing had become increasingly difficult for Glassville in her later years. Shortly after returning from Greece following Cook's death, she had fallen in love with a writer named Norman Matson, who was 17 years younger. They had a tempestuous relationship, exacerbated by the age difference and her greater fame and success. In 1932, a year after the Pulitzer, Matson left her for a younger woman. Long a heavy drinker, Glassbell fell into depression and severe alcoholism that kept her from writing much of anything. Although she did serve as Midwest bureau chief for the New Deal's Federal Theater Project from 1936 until it was disbanded in 1939. And she did eventually manage to get out three more novels and that one last play, Springs Eternal, although it wasn't published or produced until 2010. Her work is now more studied than produced. However, in 1999, the Mint Theatre Company mounted the first production of Allison's House since Le Gallienne had done it. Then, in 2015, the Metropolitan Playhouse produced another revival. As some listeners know, the Metropolitan, which specialized in plays that explored American culture and history, including overlooked and forgotten plays, closed just last month after 27 years. So I'm particularly grateful that Alex Rowe, its artistic director since 2001, agreed to talk with me about Glassbell and that production. But as I said at the beginning of all this, I've become obsessed with Glassbell, 
And so before I share my conversation with Alex Rowe, I want to share another one I had with another Glasgow lover, J. Ellen Gaynor, professor of performing and media arts at Cornell University and the author of the book, Susan Glasbell in Context, American Theater, Culture, and Politics, 1915 to 1948. Hello, Ellen Gaynor. Welcome to All the Drama. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Now, before we start talking about Allison's House, I wanted to ask you about the broader question of Susan Glassbell, because you've written a book about her, you've edited a book about her. What first attracted you to her? How did you first encounter her? And what made you want to learn more about her? So I was in graduate school, and I was actually working on British theater, not yet American theater. And I was particularly interested in attitudes towards gender in the Edwardian theater. And I read a really a groundbreaking book called Innocent Flowers by a woman named Julie Hollidge. That was really the first study of gender and women artists in the Edwardian theater. And she was talking about this playwright named Susan Glaspell, who was all the rage in London that I had never heard of. And I was kind of taken aback. How come I've never read any of this wonderful playwright's plays? And why has no one ever taught this playwright in any of the classes that I've taken? And so I kind of started on a mission. I wanted to find out more about who this really interesting woman was who had all these plays that they loved in London. And as it turned out, she, like so many other women writers, had this phenomenal career during her lifetime. And then subsequently, you know, was kind of maligned by critics and ignored by historians and kind of fell into an abyss. So I kind of took it as a mission to really find out more and get engaged with her work. And that really became one of the core things that then I have subsequently done with the rest of my career. Now, you're the perfect person to ask this question because you know her work so well. How do you rank Alison's house within her complete body of dramatic work? Let me say that I resist those kinds of rankings, Jan, okay. and I'm sorry okay. to be a difficult no. interlocutor, no. but uh, I, I resist uh, those kinds of rankings in part because she did so many different things. She was always experimenting with form. She was always responding to uh, various things that were going on socially, politically, et cetera. So I really always prefer to talk about her work in context by really focusing on what was she trying to do in each piece, because they are so different that it's really hard, I think, and really does a disservice to them to, you know, to try to put them in some kind of hierarchy. Okay, so let's jump into it. What was she doing or attempting to do with Allison's House? Allison's House premiered in November of 1930. And that was also a moment of the celebration of a very important 19th century American woman writer, Emily Dickinson. And some folks feel that Glaspell was 
using the story of Emily Dickinson as the source for Allison's house. Now, Glasspool never acknowledged that, but within the play itself, we can trace a lot of parallels. I think that one way or the other, whether it's really based on Emily Dickinson or just that narrative had resonances for Glasspool that she wanted to explore further with a fictional character in a, a different location. It's set in the Midwest. It's not set in Amherst, Massachusetts. She saw in the role that Dickinson played in American society one she wanted to explore. So the role of the woman artist, the questions around who gets to control art, what the personal versus social good of art might be. These are all the kinds of questions that she wanted to explore with this piece. But because the central character that she names Alison Stanhope lived in the 19th century, died in the 19th century, Glaspell sets her play on December 31st, 1899. So right on the cusp of the 20th century. And all of the critics missed this completely. She wrote a 19th century play precisely because she wanted to foreground the enormous changes that we were on the cusp of experiencing. The move from the sort of well-made play, right, which dominated the 19th century into modernism, right, which exploded all kinds of conventions in the theater, in life, right? And, you know, critics were very dismissive of this play. They felt it was conventional. They said it was melodramatic. They simply didn't get it. Is that what you think the Pulitzer jury recognized? Or why do you think those three guys on the jury awarded this play the prize? I think to understand the answer to that question, you actually have to understand a little bit more about the history of the Pulitzer. And I don't want to go on and on about that, but I think it's really important because first of all, I think there's a misconception about the Pulitzer. A lot of people today think, oh, the Pulitzer goes to the best play of the year. No, that's really not the purpose of the award. If we go all the way back to the founding, essentially the creation of this prize, Joseph Pulitzer, for whom the prize is named, had very specific goals for creating this award. So, so let me read you the original language from the early 20th century um, of, uh, of this award. So it's supposed to go to the original American play performed in New York, which shall best represent the educational value and power of the stage in raising the standard of good morals, good taste, and good manners. So that's from early, early 20th century, right? Let's be honest, the committee had a hard time always finding plays that met that set of criteria. Absolutely. Right? So over time, things modified a little bit. By the time we got to 1929, sort of right, you know, essentially right before Glasgow won the award, things had been modified to the point that the award was now going to, quote, the original American play, which shall best represent the educational value and power of the stage. So those issues of morals, taste, manners had kind of fallen by the wayside. 
But interestingly, we know that the judges still wanted to be on the lookout for pieces that might fit that original set of criteria, even as they recognized that they had a little bit more flexibility. And if we look closely at Allison's house, you'll see that she is engaging indeed all of those issues that are uh, in Pulitzer's kind of original uh, configuration. The, if you will, the, the, the challenge there, right, is it's not uh, a, a moralistic play in that very kind of conservative sense, but it is a play in which the, the conflicts be between characters uh, and the differences between characters emerge as we look at sort of the polarities of ideas about morals and the ideas about taste and the ideas about manners as they are evolving indeed in the early 20th century. So I think that that the, the Pulitzer Committee absolutely felt that Glasspool's play fit. And, and I can even share with you sort of the wording of their, you know, their, their, their prize sort of statement. They said that the, they highlighted the fine sincerity of the dramatist, her choice of a theme, which is fresh, taken out of American life and worthy of serious attention and her evident interest in what she had to say quite apart from any consideration of temporal styles or box office appeal. And, you know, I think they're really kind of pushing back against the, the reviewers, right? Because the reviewers, to be perfectly frank, had kind of trashed the play. They said it was old fashioned. They didn't like the fact that it was being produced off Broadway, done down on 14th Street at the Civic Repertory Theater, run by another woman, Eva Legallian. In a way, she was lucky because the jury is drawn from the body of critics who are writing at the time. And so it was just these three critics or one critic who sort of browbeat the others? <laughs> right. Walter Pritchard Eaton, who was a absolutely highly regarded, well-established, you know, critic at the at the time, was the chair of the, the committee. And, you know, he was already a Glasspool fan and that may have helped. Well, rightly, wrongly, whatever <laughs> the critics felt, it is a Pulitzer winner. And that alone will always keep her name in the, the, the conversation about the American theatrical canon. So I want to thank you for, for talking to us about Susan Glassbell and this play of hers, this, in a way, controversial play of hers, Allison's House. Thank you so much for reaching out and giving us the, the opportunity because I think you can tell people who are Glasspool people were really dedicated and, <laughs> and want to keep her legacy alive because we think she's a wonderful artist. So thank you for providing the opportunity for us to hopefully share her with even more people. Great. Thanks again. And now here's my conversation with Alex Rowe. Hello, Alex Rowe. Welcome to All the Drama. Hi, Jeff. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we talk about Allison's House, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you first encountered Susan Glassbell and her work. 
sure. I was working with a very bright young man named Michael Bloom, who had done some research through a dramaturgy program at Columbia, and he was the one first introduced her to me, much to my chagrin. I mean, I certainly knew in the back of my mind about trifles, and our company had produced it before I was a part of the company, and, and a reading, you know, and it gets done an awful lot. But he brought me the script to Inheritors, which is a gorgeous play from the 20s about generations of American wealth and education and goes into immigration policies and xenophobia and expansion to the West, all sorts of wonderful and still quite resonant themes. And I fell in love with the play and we did that back in, I want to say 2003, but I, I might be wrong about the date. And that was really what got me excited about Glassbell herself. And then I started reading some more of her plays, both her shorter works, but but also the longer ones, like Alison's House, which, of course, won the Pulitzer. And yet I, like many people, had never heard of it when we first did Inheritance, and it was a wonderful discovery. Why do you think that is? She was such a major writer in her day. Why do you think even people who love theater, people who do theater like you, are so unaware of her. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say one thing that's obvious, but I think nonetheless true. I think it's, it's a basic sexism that led to her being ignored and overshadowed by some of her contemporaries, including you know, her own husband, George Cram Cook, and certainly Eugene O'Neill. All the work that was done out of Provincetown, including Glassbells and her fellow, her co-founder, Niece Boyce, really got eclipsed, I think, by the men. And then, uh, you remember when she won the Pulitzer, there was extraordinary pushback against Allison's house. It was really dismissed by a lot of critics and intellectuals. Uh, and I always think that, and this may be, this is a gendered interpretation maybe, and, and maybe that's out of date to even say, but I think there's a subtlety in, in the emotional unfolding, I always think of Chekhov as being emotional slapstick and sort of psychological pratfalls and the humor and the, the marvel of Chekhov's plays is not in, you know, the exploding steamships of the era right before, but in the, the subtle emotional heartbreaks. And I think that um, Susan Glassbell really captures the same thing, the extraordinary uh, collapses and breaches and injuries and w blossoming of love and care are all much subtler, sometimes entirely unspoken, and harder simply for, for people to appreciate until they experience them in performance. But I think that somehow led to, to a dismissal of the work. So it's both it's both the quality of her work itself, as well as I just think a good old fashioned sexism led her being overlooked and dismissed, and 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 therefore dismissed by by future generations because she she doesn't make that she hadn't made that lasting impact after her own time. As you noted, there was a lot of controversy when she won the Pulitzer. So I'm curious, what do you think gave the Pulitzer jury the confidence, the insight to award her the prize? What did they see? It was not a great question, and, and not knowing the 
the people who constituted the jury. I, I can't guess a lot of it. What I will say about the play itself is that it captures this wonderful transition. You had set on New Year's, 1899 going into 1900. It really is about a transition from one period to another, the awakening of a new world, maybe a new sensibility, which, of course, Glassdoor's looking back on from, is it 40 years, mm-hmm. and, and using that as an interpretive skein or a, you know, a device of sorts. But I can't help but think that they, they recognize that, that she was capturing more than just a family drama and more than a kind of fictionalized embrace of Emily Dickinson's legacy. Those are behind it, certainly. But also a generational confrontation, questions of cultural preservation as well as familial preservation and literary preservation. And... And that, I mean, at the time that she wrote it, where we're looking at two world wars already, I think must have really, really rung true. Or I used the word resonant earlier, resonated with the with the jury. One, one, of, one of the things the play really gets right at the heart at is how public is private life and the private life of a renowned figure, in this case, a literary figure. And the idea that the, the, the titular poet, Allison, had work that her nephew, I guess, it is once destroyed, or maybe it's her, her brother. I apologize. But <laughs> yeah, maybe it's her brother. That sense of of protecting privacy and protecting the private life from the public eye was was perhaps becoming a concern in the '40s in a way that we certainly recognize today. But mm-hmm. as the world is speeding up, communications are speeding up, and our our sense of what is what is our own, what is protected, and what is available to the rest of the world in terms of our reputations, in terms of our, our work, I think we're perhaps becoming newly alive. And I'm not a cultural historian that can really say at that moment whether whether that's so. But given Glassbell's own career as a journalist and her experience uncovering hidden dramas, including the very murder story that was the source of trifles, makes me think it was large on her mind well, obviously because of play, but but perhaps she was tapping into something that was also uh, meaningful to the jury at the time. But those are those are first thoughts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even people who know her work or appreciate her work, Allison's House isn't the the favorite. It won the Pulitzer, but it's not considered perhaps her strongest play. So I was just wondering, what made you decide to stage this particular one? Well, good, good question. And, you know, some people questioned it after we did it, even when we did, which, you know, I, I, I hope was not the fault of the production. But uh, on the one hand, it, it certainly fit in with our theater's mission. Metropolitan has been devoted to recovering lost or forgotten works and giving playwrights of the past their due, particularly if they were signal playwrights of the past that have been, in many cases, just left by the wayside or eclipsed by later authors. And so, it certainly deserves attention given our mission, but I also well at the time we were we were looking at this explosion of social media still seemed not not quite in its infancy but in early days mm-hmm. and considering the very uh-huh. themes that I just touched on and I thought this was a really really important thing to to bring into people's lives because the, the very subtlety that I think has maybe led readers and Later, not scholars so much, because I know a lot of scholars who are quite enamored of Glassbell, but later critics in the 
theatrical cognoscenti to overlook her were the very the very subtle and sensitive treatment and exploration of the themes that I like so well and I thought would really shed a light on our current moment, not just because the themes were were familiar, but because they are treated with such personal understanding and personal sensitivity. She she has a real gift for taking interpersonal dynamics and, and as I said before, sometimes the unspoken ones, often those of women who are rebellious but disenfranchised in a, in a male-dominated world and making drama out of those, finding a way to take these difficult to phrase and capture and articulate conflict and turn them into wonderful stage drama. So, so I think those are the things. I, I find it quite a, quite a magical play and quite, quite moving, but it also seemed very, very timely when we chose to do it. How did go over does it resonate with modern audiences i i'd say it does and i haven't looked back to you know read all the the email comments usually we can appraise the success of our plays other than just the the warm feeling in the audience by uh, letters people send us and reviews and i thought it was as really quite successful and and very moving and quite magical and i think it was it was well received uh, it didn't break box office records, and it didn't get us, you know, sort of national news attention. I, I think it, it it remained a thoughtful play and a longish play. So it, it was it was not a a stunning success for us, but but it certainly worked in in every way that that we wanted it to. We of course weren't the first um, company to do it. Uh, the the Mint had done it long enough before that I thought New York could use a revival. And most of the people I think who came to see it had not known it, had not seen it before. So, so it, it rang those bells. But uh, it, it was, you know, it was also not the the first time anyone had done it in, in eighty years, which sometimes can make a difference in in its reception. Well, I want to thank you for bringing attention to her and and to this particular play, and to thank you also for talking with us about it. Really appreciate your taking the time. Well, I appreciate your your interest in you know, a remarkable writer and a particular work that I like an awful lot. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at jan at broadwayradio.com.